I know. I know. I know. We are attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. One more time. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Um, this is one of my favorite chapels of the year. It is one of my favorites because Dr. Tom King is going to be preaching. I want you to welcome him. Scripture reading is taken from Genesis 50. Beginning at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to his brothers. You may be seated. Of all the miracles in the Bible, and all the miracles of history, which one might you consider the greatest miracle of all? Perhaps creation itself. After all, if it wasn't for the creation, we simply wouldn't exist. Some may suggest the great flood through which Noah and his family were preserved. How much grander a miracle than the drowning of an entire planet? Ancient Israel might point to the plagues of Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, and the great Exodus event as God's most important miracle. The Exodus event is often considered the very birth of the nation of Israel through the powerful deliverance brought about by God's mighty hand against Pharaoh. Or at the other end of Old Testament history, some might point to the great restoration from exile, including the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. And then there are a host of localized miracles that we might consider. The provision of manna and quail in the wilderness, the collapse of the walls of Jericho, the defeat of the giant Goliath, Elijah raising the widow's son from the dead, fire from heaven falling to light the altar at Mount Carmel, and many others. 
And we haven't even mentioned the miracles of Jesus and those done through the apostles, walking on water, turning water to wine, healing the blind, cleansing leprosy, causing cripples to walk, even raising people from the dead. So what's the greatest miracle? In response to this mystery, I suggest not one particular miracle, but a category of miracle which God performs throughout the Bible in history. I believe this type of miracle embraces the greatest acts of God. But before identifying my suggestion for greatest miracle category, we need to discuss a significant prerequisite which sometimes appears with this type of miracle. I'm talking about the need to surrender bitterness and turn toward trusting God in the midst of a crisis which calls for a miracle. This need for surrender, my thought concerning the greatest miracle, these are illustrated in the story of Joseph, is related in the book of Genesis. I invite you to once again listen to the story of Joseph and capture the message within the drama of his life. The story of Joseph spans chapters 37 through 50 of Genesis, more than a fourth of the book. And even before the book focuses on the adventures of Joseph himself, the writer sets up the story with important information regarding the dynamics of the family of Jacob and his 12 sons, among whom was Joseph. So the story of Joseph actually begins as early as Genesis 29. Recall, Joseph's father, Jacob, had two wives. And we discover that his true love was actually for the second wife, Rachel. He fell in love with Rachel and desired to marry her. However, his father-in-law tricked him into first marrying the older sister, Leah, and only then he was able to marry his true love, Rachel. Rachel, Jacob's beloved, was initially barren. Leah, meanwhile, started bearing sons for Jacob. And out of anxiety that she would no longer be loved or considered worthy, Rachel gave her handmaiden to Jacob in order that she might bear sons on her behalf. And with that, in the words of a former professor of mine, the baby Olympics began. <laughs> Leah figured she could play that game as well. And so she also gave her handmaiden to Jacob in order to bear more sons on her behalf. And finally, Rachel herself was able to give birth to a son who was named Joseph. When the family was nearly complete, Jacob had 11 boys and one daughter by two wives and their two handmaidens. Sometime later, while the family was traveling toward Bethlehem, Jacob's beloved Rachel died while giving birth to her second son for Jacob. At this point in the story, it's important that we recognize these two youngest boys in the family, Joseph and his baby brother, Benjamin, were extra dear to the heart of Jacob. 
For now they were all that remained to him of his true love, Rachel. Jacob's favor for Rachel's two boys becomes evident when we read in the biblical text that Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other children. And naturally, Joseph's brothers become jealous of him because their father favored Joseph. And to make things worse, Jacob gave to Joseph that special coat of many colors. And the brothers' jealousy grew into hatred against Joseph. And the hatred grew even greater when Joseph had a dream which implied that his brothers were all to bow down to him. Thus, we're not completely surprised when we read that the brothers plotted to kill Joseph when he came to them out in the fields when they were watching over their flocks. Of course, it turned out instead of killing him, they ended up throwing him into a pit and selling him as a slave to a caravan of foreign merchants. I must confess, growing up with my brothers, such actions crossed my mind at times. The brothers took Joseph's multicolored coat, dipped it in goat's blood, and convinced Father Jacob that Joseph had been devoured by wild animals. In response to this painful news, Jacob tore his garments, put on sackcloth, mourned and bewailed the death of Joseph, and refused to be comforted. Of course, Jacob's sorrow is all the more dramatic because he had lost one of the only two sons of his beloved Rachel. Meanwhile, Joseph was taken as a slave to Egypt and began a series of turbulent adventures. Even though he prospered as a servant for an officer of Pharaoh, he was falsely accused of attempting to rape his master's wife. Though he was placed in charge of all the other prisoners, he was still incarcerated in Pharaoh's dungeon for over two years. Joseph's freedom came when God enabled Joseph to interpret two troubling dreams which Pharaoh himself had dreamed. Not only did Joseph identify that the dreams were a warning of a great famine coming, but he also provided Pharaoh with sound advice for preserving Egypt through those years of famine. And since none of the magicians or wise men of Egypt could help Pharaoh, he not only released Joseph from prison, but he placed Joseph second in command of all Egypt. As part of his responsibilities, Joseph controlled all the grain and produce of Egypt, and he controlled the distribution of grain through the time of famine. This brings us to the critical part of our story. In the context of ruling Egypt as second only to Pharaoh, Joseph was reunited with his brothers who had previously sought to kill him and had sold him into slavery. The Bible tells us that this great famine impacted all the world at the time and all the world came to Joseph to buy grain. Thus back in Canaan, Jacob determined to send his sons to Egypt to buy grain and save the family from starvation. It's significant that the biblical text states that exactly 10 of Joseph's brothers were sent to Egypt. 
And in case we miss the point, the writer explicitly notes Jacob did not send Benjamin. Benjamin, who we know is Joseph's only full brother, the only other child of Jacob's lost love, Rachel. When the boys arrived in Egypt, Joseph recognized his brothers. But they did not recognize Joseph in this powerful Egyptian ruler of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And though Joseph recognized his brothers, nevertheless we read that he spoke to them harshly and accused them of being foreign spies seeking out the vulnerabilities of the land of Egypt. His brothers denied the charges and with anxiety blurted out a brief family history explaining that they came from a family of 12 brothers, one of whom is no more, one of whom is back home with father. Joseph continued to accuse them of being spies and said he would test them to see if they were telling the truth. He placed all 10 brothers in prison for three days then released them and said, one of them must remain in prison while the rest return home. And Joseph further demanded that the brothers must bring back to Joseph the younger brother of whom they spoke in order to verify their story so they shall not die. The statement in Genesis 42.20 illustrates the power which Joseph held over his brothers. He held their lives in his hands and threatened them with death. This first encounter with Joseph ends with Joseph having brother Simeon bound before the eyes of the others and sending home the rest of them with the grain that he allowed them to purchase. Meanwhile, Joseph secretly arranged for all of their money to be returned to them in the top of their grain bags. It becomes evident Joseph is toying with the powerful temptation of vengeance. Though he recognized his brothers, he accused them of spying, threw them in prison, threatened their lives, and kept one of them bound. At the same time, Joseph is torn between this bitterness against his brothers and his compassion for his family. After all, he returned all their money back into their grain bags. When the boys return home to Father Jacob, they explained to him everything that happened. And when Jacob heard that this ruler of Egypt was demanding that the boys take Benjamin back with them the next time they return, Jacob cried out to his sons, I am the one you have bereaved of children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? In response, Reuben, the oldest son, steps up and boldly tells his father, you may kill my own two sons if I do not bring Benjamin back safely. Nevertheless, Jacob refused. He stated, my son will not go with you, for his brother is dead. He alone is left. If harm should come to him, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to show. When the family ran out of grain, and the second trip had to be made back to Egypt, 
it was Brother Judah who approached Father Jacob and said that he would stand for surety for Benjamin. Judah said, if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Clearly the fate of Judah, Reuben's sons, Simeon, Jacob, indeed the entire clan of Israel now revolved around the safety of this youngest son, the only child of Rachel remaining to Jacob, young Benjamin. When the brothers returned to Egypt with Benjamin to buy more grain, once again, we see Joseph struggle with emotions torn between bitterness and compassion. He set up a banquet for his brothers. He brought Simeon out to join them. The brothers still do not recognize Joseph, and they remain fearful for their lives. But when Joseph saw Benjamin, his mother's only other son, Joseph was so overwhelmed that he rushed out of the room in order to weep privately. And after composing himself, he returned and had the meal served. He arranged for the brothers to be seated and served in order from youngest to oldest. And Benjamin was served with a portion five times greater than that of the other brothers. This move astounded the brothers. They looked at each other with amazement. How does he know this? And when the brothers were ready once again to return to Canaan with more grain, again Joseph secretly arranged to have all their money returned in the top of their grain bags. But this time, Joseph also secretly placed his silver cup representative of Joseph's power and position. He secretly placed this cup in the top of Benjamin's grain bag. And when the brothers had only traveled a short distance on the way back home, Joseph sent his steward after them with the accusation of stealing from the ruler of all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And the brothers reacted in desperation. In verse 9 of chapter 44, they proclaimed their innocence and stated, If such a stolen cup is found among any one of us, that one shall die, and the rest become Joseph's slaves. The drama and suspense of the moment is drawn out as a search was made through each brother's grain sack from oldest to youngest. And when Benjamin's bag was opened, the stolen silver chalice was revealed. Benjamin, surely not Benjamin, not the only son left to our father of his beloved Rachel. Look what our actions have brought us to. We have killed our father. The brothers tore their clothes in an act of mourning and panic, reloaded their donkeys, and raced back to Joseph. Judah offered himself and all the brothers as Joseph's slaves. But Joseph responded, Only the one in whose possession the cup was found need remain as my slave. The rest of you return home. At this point, Judah 
steps before Joseph and delivers one of the most strained and impassioned speeches in all the Bible. He cries out to Joseph, we came to you for grain. You asked if we had a father or brother. We said we have an old man father. We have a younger brother. His brother is dead. He alone is left. Father loves him. You insisted we bring younger brother to you. We told you the boy cannot leave his father or he will die. When we told father the boy must come with us, he said to us, you know my wife bore me only two sons. One has left me. He's surely been torn to pieces. If this one does not return home and he is harmed, you will bring down my gray hairs in sorrow to show. Now if we return home to father without the boy, his life is bound up in the boy's life. When he sees the boy is gone, he will die and your servants will bring down their father's gray hairs with sorrow to show. I beg you, let me stay as slave in place of the boy. Upon hearing Judah's cry, Joseph could no longer control himself. He had been holding the very lives of his brothers in his hand. He had cried over the deprivation of his family. Judah's speech broke the dam of all Joseph's bitterness and released the flood of his compassion. He sent out all his servants and revealed himself fully to his brothers. He broke down and wept so loudly all Egypt heard his wailing as far as the household of Pharaoh. He kissed his brothers and wept upon them. Sometime later, when all the family had been reunited and Jacob had the opportunity to grow old and pass away, Joseph's brothers approached him still clinging to their fear he might hold a grudge and repay them for the evil deeds they did to him years before. They asked for forgiveness in the name of their father Jacob. And Joseph responded with these words, Even though you intended to do harm to me, God devised it for good. Joseph released his bitterness and desire for vengeance, forgave his brothers by recognizing God had brought about good from evil. In this act of surrendering his perceived right to vengeance, Joseph becomes a model of Christ-like behavior. He echoes the concepts of turning the other cheek, loving your enemies, and Christ's words on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. Joseph models for us the ideal of forgiveness. At the same time, all too often we can relate to the struggle which Joseph exemplified throughout this story. Through his position of power and authority, he deceived, he threatened, he imprisoned, he terrified his brothers by holding their lives in his hands. He was finally overwhelmed by compassion and love and released his bitterness by recognizing God's grace in saving the whole family through these wrongful circumstances. Joseph's release of bitterness, turning to love and compassion, reflect the very passion of God for his own people as described by the prophet Hosea. 
In Hosea 11, we read of God's wrath directed against sin and the apostasy of Israel. In verses 5 to 7 of chapter 11 of Hosea, God's anger and plans to destroy Israel are revealed. However, the very next verses of Hosea 11, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man. I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Now I think we can identify what might be God's greatest miracle. I believe Joseph identifies it as he surrenders his bitterness and recognizes God's hand of deliverance. Joseph said to his brothers, you intended to do harm to me, but God devised it for good. One of God's greatest miracles is the miracle of turning our evil intentions and evil circumstances into good. It's expressed by Paul with a statement in Romans 8 which can be translated, we know that in all things God works for good. It's not that God devises evil in order to bring about good. It's not that God desires or needs evil to bring about good. Rather, it is that the marvelous grace of God does not leave us suffering in the wrongful circumstances, but rather delivers us and devises good even out of our sin and evil. God's greatest miracle is the exercise of His grace, turning evil to good, death to life, hopelessness to deliverance, loss to found, corruption to salvation, bitterness to kindness, vengeance to compassion. On other occasions, I've spoken about my admiration for my older brother. However, in relation to my younger brother, my own actions in the past bring me shame. In elementary school, my friends and I used to repeat an insulting saying to those whom we sought to mock. I used to repeat that saying to my younger brother. It reflected the ugliness and immaturity of early adolescence. I had long forgotten those words of that insult when just a couple of years ago, while my brother and I were both in our 40s, he reminded me of hearing those cruel words. He did not claim any remaining pain from them, but it struck me that they could still be seared in his mind after all these years. It cut me deep in the heart to think that after more than 30 years, my cruel and ugly words still remained in his thoughts. Nevertheless, just last week, in a broadcast email to family and friends, my younger brother called me his hero. Such love and respect I do not deserve. Yet here is another expression of God's great miracle. With my brother's forgiveness, 
God transformed my evil actions into reconciliation and renewal. I love my younger brother, and I'm grateful for his friendship. The greatest manifestation of this miracle is evident in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What humanity intended for evil, the elimination of God in the flesh and destruction of God's ways of love and selflessness, God devised into good the deliverance and salvation of a world lost in sin. As one of my professors described it, God twisted the crown of thorns into a crown of glory. The story of Joseph calls us to Christ-like living, the recognition of God's miracle of grace in our lives. How often we become caught up in our desire for revenge against those who hurt us. How often we fall into hopelessness when circumstances overwhelm us. Yet Christ enables us to surrender such bitterness, allow compassion and love to overwhelm our response, and then God enacts the miracle of transforming wrongful situations into good, bringing restoration and deliverance. Is there a relationship for which you need to seek forgiveness? Is there bitterness against someone which you need to release? Are there wrongful circumstances overwhelming you concerning which there seems no hope? Seek forgiveness. Surrender bitterness. And recognize God's great miracle of turning evil into hope and deliverance. Take us forth, O Lord, in the power of your overwhelming love and compassion, that we might be servants who advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.